0: I feel very lucky that PRG found me as much as I found PRG because I don't think I would have made the transition without it. It was like a hold on for dear life kind of moment when, when it restarted. I always enjoyed feeling a part of something.
1: Hello and welcome to the Theatre Art Live podcast sponsored by CLEARCOM. CLEARCOM is the leader in voice communications since 1968 for theater and the performing arts. When the show must go on, CLEARCOM is there to keep the team on cue. The Theatre Art Live podcast puts the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world, the culture creators and the backstage masters. My name is Kat Landry. And my name is Anna Robb, and welcome to our LDI
2: special. In our LDI series, we'll be speaking with some of the people who will be speaking or exhibiting at this year's LDI show running from November 14 to 20 at the Las Vegas Convention Center. Today, our guest is Alexander Donnelly, the VP and General Manager of Broadway at PRG's.
1: Alex joined PRG in early 2018 as the Director of Corporate Development, where he advised on a number of strategic M&A transactions that expanded PRG's international presence in TV and film, most notably with the acquisition of VER. He transitioned to the Broadway division in 2020 and now manages the lighting, audio, and video teams in Secaucus, New York. Outside of PRG, he owns and manages Fortress Productions and was the founding executive director of the Corkscrew Theatre Festival, a multi-venue theatrical nonprofit in New York City. He received his Bachelor of Arts from Columbia University and worked at Bank of America and Natixis prior to joining PRG. Alex, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, folks. Happy to be here.
1: So you started in, in
2: banking, I understand, Alex. So what was your path to entertainment? Tell us about that.
0: Yeah, I mean there's the uh, the short version is in fact long in itself, so I'll try to keep this pretty abbreviated, but <clears throat> at some point uh you know in college I I looked around, I had been in a relationship with someone who was a few years older than me and when she and her friends all graduated, I looked around and realized I had no friends anymore. <laughs> like I, I didn't know who I was hanging out with. And I thought to myself, you know, what's a what's an easy way to sort of build up your social calendar? to, you know, meet people and stay involved. And though I was studying finance the entire time I was there, I really fell in with the the theater community uh, at my undergraduate, Uh, mostly because, you know, a a roommate was in the show and they needed a piano player or, you know, we're going to need help, uh, you know, painting some scenery after school. Do you want to do that? So got involved even really from my freshman year, but really dove right in my junior year Um, and ended up becoming the president of our, you know, Performing Arts Association. Um, It was a non-curricular program, so it really, I think for me personally, was a great place to stay involved, but kind of still have my finance side kind of in my career track uh, at the same time, and not feel like I was really giving anything up to do that. I think by the time my junior year hit, enough of my friends were doing Uh, We were in New York, so like the Fringe Theater Festival and other um, personal projects that, you know, fundraising seemed daunting to them, or even just like balancing a budget seemed daunting to them. And that was something that I felt like, you know, it was straightforward enough and easy for me to do. So pretty much from then on, even though I knew I was going to be in finance, I had this idea that I would do finance long enough to either uh, hit it big myself or meet a bunch of people that... Uh, would ultimately be able to fund my own and my friends' theatre projects. And I did that for about ten years, sort of splitting between two different, a day job and a and a night pursuit, that ultimately just became untenable. When I was at Bank of America, I was raising a little bit of money, we would call it co-producing, in, in the Broadway world. Uh, the first show I did that on was Waitress, and then Oh Hello, Sunday in the Park with George. At some point, I realized that's not a career and tried to do, you know, build things from the ground up, which take a lot more time and a lot more risky. And then the the PRG role sort of, uh, you know, I hate to say it, but almost fell in my lap. I only knew PRG as a lighting audio video vendor when I had my theater company. And I had had on my list, you know, oh, I should talk to, I should find a way to talk to Jerry Harris and Darren Daverna and I'll ask them to donate lighting equipment to my theater festival. And when I tried to set up that conversation, they were asking things like, do you have a resume? And when can you start? Which I thought was very weird. You know, it doesn't often happen in a conversation about donated lighting. And uh, eventually, they they brought me on to, to help facilitate the VER acquisition. So it was not a conscious, okay, you know, finance is not for me. I, it's time to do theater. I think if I didn't if I never learned what PRG was, I might still be in finance, Uh, or or I would have left at some point and tried to kind of scratch together a theater producing career. But it's really challenging to to do that. It's tough to find that next paycheck all the time. So I feel very lucky that PRG found me as much as I found PRG, because I don't think I would have made the transition without it.
1: That's so interesting. Do you feel like you made a transition from being a finance guy in a theater world to being a theater guy in a finance world? Or have you always found that those parts of your personality kind of go hand in hand?
0: Let's put it this way. Everyone that I worked with at Bank of America and Natixis, though I tried to keep a very, you know, finance first you know, position in the office, because otherwise you'll get passed up for promotions and raises, et cetera. They all kind of knew I was the dramatic one, both personality-wise and in my uh, extracurricular pursuits. I mean, truth be told, some people were really fascinated by it. You know, Not many people have the time or relationships to really have a very deep, even if they saw it as a hobby, I I didn't, but a, a deep, deep hobby like that. So I think it was, they always saw me as the theater guy who was in finance. And I think almost now, because I had started with a theater festival, I mean, you're you're doing everything yourself, right? You are renting the U-Haul, you're driving the U-Haul to PRG to get the lights, you're driving up to Poughkeepsie to get the scenic flats that you built in your friend's garage, and then you're installing it yourself. I think... Though when I first came into PRG, I think people still saw me as like a corporate finance person. I think pretty quickly when people get to work with me and know me, they realize, you know, my love of the theater runs deep. And though I certainly don't have nearly as much experience or technical knowledge as the people that I work with, I think they, they don't see me as, well, hopefully not at least, uh, <laughs> like just a finance guy.
2: <laughs> I love that. I love that. So, but tell us a little bit about Corkscrew Theatre Festival. And how did that evolve? And that's something that, you know, is still ongoing, I understand, correct?
0: Yeah, it's. In, we'll see what happens on the other side of uh, 2022. Uh, we started it in 2017. At that point, a number of friends of mine who all went to college together, we had been doing the fringe festival shows. I had done three, they had done, you know, four, five, six. And we kind of looked around and thought, like, we're not getting much from this. I mean, it's good practice. It's, it's, it's fun if you like the environment. But it was a very stressful environment in that it was set up to do as many shows as possible. Uh, and for anyone who's unfamiliar, the Fringe Festival operated in New York for probably at least 20, 25 years. It stopped in 2017. Its whole model was like you get 15 minutes to load in your entire show. You're set your costumes, your people, your audience, like 15 minutes. So you're waiting outside, often in the rain or 90 degree heat with your, you know, your prop chairs and lamps and whatever. And, uh, okay, go, you you run that in, you get your, you know, you kiss your mom and aunt, hello, and, you know, get them all situated. The premise of it was that it was, you know, the breeding ground for future shows. I mean, Bat Boy started there, you're in town. It was meant to be a, a place where great theater could start, it, by the time we were doing it, it, it was challenging to see how you could do that. Because even if you invited critics, even if you got their attention, A, there's 200 other shows that you're competing with. And then there was, you know, uh, is this the work you're most proud of? You couldn't really load it in. You, you're running a little bit of lighting off of a floppy disk and, like, hope that doesn't go down. So we had always been ruminating on what's a better way to do a festival and at the time, I think we just thought, like, well, we have four friends who all have shows. What if we just rented a theater and we all, like, you take Thursday night, I'll take Friday night, you know, whatever. And then when Fringe announced that they would not, they'd be taking a year off, in air quotes, they did not return. Okay. And when they said they'd be taking a year off, we thought, now's the year to do it. So we rented a 65-seat black box theater our first year. Uh, we got... I think we raised maybe $10,000 that first year, which even that was like, I, I don't know how we're going to find that uh, and kind of kept building. So we added a second venue uh, our second year. And by the last year of pre-COVID, we were a you know low six-figure operating budget, just going door to door, asking people for donations. Um, we wanted it to be an artist first experience. So we did not ask for application fees. There was no participation fee. We made it, we really thought a lot about budgeting our values, and our values were making it an accessible experience and making sure that you can put up your best work. So making sure that we had items in our budget for babysitting services so that, you know, parents of young children could come and, and work on our shows but also see them, that they had design budgets so that, I did not want to invite press to a show that had no set because they had no money for a set, I wanted to make sure they had a set so even though they it was meager being able to support their design ambitions as well which inevitably i think set me up well for prg a little bit because it was it ended up being so production focused for a festival of that size but it was really just look it was a labor of love it was a lot of fun no one made any money doing it in fact i'm sure we all lost money if we really spoke to our accounts about it and it ran for four years pre-pandemic we did a pandemic season kind of trying to see where that would end up going and inevitably i think myself and the other founders were all having less time for it had wanted to transition it to other people and we'll see if that ends up happening i think uh it's also okay if a theater festival you know lives and breathes for you know five to seven years and then the space opens up for other people to do it you know at the end of the day you're renting a space and you're trying to get people to come see shows it's it's not the end of the world if Corkscrew is not the name stamped on top of it anymore.
1: So it seems like one of the most important parts of this festival was to kind of promote a more inclusive and accessible environment for artists to be able to put on their work without those kind of barriers to entry, which are obviously the the huge financial costs and et cetera. How do you feel the industry is doing at that right now? Do you see any change in this do you see some of the good things that you've been working for uh, being implemented by other folks in the industry particularly in new york
0: that's a big question i think one of the easiest things for us to track on our side of the industry because we're often one of the last people engaged in a show you know usually the designers the creative that's all been worked out the production team has been set, then it goes out to bid and then we might have, best case scenario, a month to put a package together, and then the prep will start you know, 30 days after that, uh, and then the shows load in. So m- most surface level, I would say, it does seem like we're getting a little bit more diverse storytelling, um, specifically thinking of commercial theater, Broadway. But I think there was sort of an undercurrent, especially at the beginning of the 2021 into 2022 season of Is this just surface level? You know, there were, I think, 11 new Black playwrights on Broadway centered around the fall of 2021. That's terrific. Were the audiences there for it? Were we really supporting these artists all the way through? Or, you know, was this a little bit of checking the box? You know, it was going to be tough to sell tickets anyway. You might as well put up an unproven uh, show. And I think people would, I would forgive people for being cynical about that. At the same time, I do think getting it up there at all, I'm sure I could ask you both, like, what's the one, what's your first theater of memory that, that you have? Like, what, when did it all change for you? You know, I, I remember being, what, uh, 10 or 9, watching Thoroughly Modern Millie, tap dance elevator goes up, and I'm like, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. By having those shows up at all, did we have more opportunities for people to see that? And I think the answer is probably. So I think it's the the storytelling and the diversity of who we're putting in the room is important. But really, crucially, it's only a first step. And making sure that the environment we're welcoming diverse bodies into is a supportive one, I think, is really important. And I don't know if we're really there yet in talking with some general managers and company managers the sort of common retort last year was we said we were going to get better we said we were going to be kinder we said our the hours were going to get better we said all of these things and the common refrain was we came back worse i think there was such a rush to reopen that the you know we're in this together we're partners was easy to say in july of 2021 and a little bit out the window in november 2021 I think it's been getting better since then, but I know if I felt that way as a cis white male, I'm sure it felt much harder for people trying to break in.
1: And now a note from our sponsor. The Theatre Art Life podcast is proud to be sponsored by Clearcom. Clearcom is the leader in voice communication since 1968 for theater and the performing arts. When the show must go on, Clearcom is there to keep the team on cue. You can find them at C-L-E-A-R-C-O-M dot com. Go check them out. So you have very successfully for for a few years provided a, a platform for people to be able to put on their art and their shows. Do you have any advice for other people who might agree with you theoretically but not know how to provide that kind of accessibility Um, or that that kind of opportunity for other people? And what can we do to help?
0: Yeah, I I have two rather specific examples, I would say. And these aren't going to work for everyone. But when I first got to PRG, I'll get back to the corkscrew thing in a second. But when I first got back to, when I first got to PRG, I remember thinking, there's no way for me to learn anything about this industry. There's no textbooks. There's no courses. There's no whatever. It feels like it's a lot of, for lack of a better word, tribal knowledge that kind of gets passed down. And then during the pandemic, when there was nothing else to do, I spent a lot of time trying to learn these things. I realized there's actually a lot of materials out there. There's terrific textbooks, if if that's your thing. There's a hundred different podcasts that interview these people. Some are very technical, some are very theoretical, some are just life stories. But there's so much information out there, and you just have to seek it out. So to that, to that question, when we started Corkscrew, it was blind. I mean, we just had this gut feeling that we could do it better, and we tried to do that every day. When the pandemic hit and we had more time, we started realizing in New York, there's an organization called Art New York, the Alliance of Resident Theaters, ART. I don't know. It, but okay, Art New York, if you look it up, it's there. They do trainings like twice a week. On, like here's how to manage a small budget, here's how to apply for grants, here's how to do this, here's how to do that. And the resources that they had, you know, I'm sure some of it felt very soft, but some of the best ones, and I brought one up already, is like an exercise in budgeting your values. What are your values? Does your budget reflect that? If you are saying that you're taking down barriers and part of those barriers are economics, are you paying people a wage? I mean, are you paying your staff? Are you paying the artists? Are you mandating that people working with you pay their artists a living wage? Start there. You know, okay, what's step two? You know, who do you want in the room? What are their barriers to being there? Can they not get there because of transit? Can they not get there because? You only have meetings during the day and everyone works other job. Okay, well, then your meetings better be at night. I think starting with the values and building a budget and a priority stack below that that supports that work is is kind of the first step and one that I totally did not think about in starting Corkscrew and only thought about in years three and four and kind of, oh, wow, we really didn't actually do that very well. you know In years one and two, how can we change what we're doing? So I think that's one. The second one that I would say is there are a number of artistic mediators and we use this in Corkscrew to work through some leadership you know questions that we were having, you know, identity questions. I wish we had done it from day 1, you know, thinking about what are the expectations of everyone? How are we? It's like marriage counseling, but with, you know, your co-collaborators. And I think it can be really helpful in working out your own feelings, and sometimes when you feel complicated about things. You know, I know we want to do this, but it feels like we cannot for these reasons. You know, is that fear? Is that living under a scarcity mindset? Is that actually your other partners think they have really great ways to solve these problems, but they didn't know you were struggling with it? So I think bringing that in early and often is, is really important. And like, I know it probably sounds daunting. I think it was like $50 an hour, you know, you meet with someone once a week, every two weeks, it's, it's really worth the investment, but these are two very specific things under an umbrella of, if you care to do something about it, you better be doing something about it and, and not just living in good intentions. Because I think every person who is listening to this, who thinks to themselves, they have a, a boss who's out of touch or a, a client or a colleague that they just can't work with, I guarantee you that person did not wake up, you know, the day of their 18th birthday and say, I want to get into this industry to ruin someone's life. Like, I think it happens, you know, like you, you you, are on the forefront of it at one point, and then, you know, the world moves on. And if you don't make an effort to stay engaged with it, it's very easy to to leave that in the past. And It's going to be tough if you wake up one day and you're at the head of an organization, then for the first time trying to teach yourself how to listen, how to uh, take other people's needs into consideration. Like that's a muscle you need to be flexing your your entire career.
2: Oh, absolutely. And I think also that culture takes a time to change, right? And we did come to an awareness during COVID that, oh, there's all of these issues we need to address, but we can't necessarily come out of the gate and be like, right, the world's changed and everything's going to be perfect. Like, we need, still need to find a roadmap to how we make that more diverse and how we g- get better at giving people opportunities and that sort of thing, and the c- awareness and consciousness that starts with that. I, I wonder, like, within PRG coming out of the pandemic, like, how did PRG ride through the pandemic, and then on the on the outback, is there any culture change or shift within? the company that happened post-COVID for for PRG?
0: Look, pandemic was bleak for PRG. We went from 3,200 full-time employees down to something like 300. Everyone who was left took pay cuts and we were doing everything we could to find two nickels to rub together. It was, uh, in a way, I think everyone who stayed felt like they were working harder than they ever had and we had nothing to show for it. I mean, I pulled the first true all-nighter I ever had since college in the middle of the pandemic. And then I look around today and say like, well, what did I fix? What process did we make? Like, nothing. No- nothing, nothing, nothing for the benefit uh, you know, of the future. It was just, oh, you know, maybe drive-in movie theaters will be a big thing or maybe uh, you know, pop-up touring experience. Like none of them came to fruition or, or one of them did. So I think when then the industry turned back on, like I said, though, everyone had great intentions of how we were going to do it. You know, we got the call on Friday that Springsteen on Broadway was going to be in the shop on Monday. We called the electrician on Sunday and said, do you have a list for us? And he said, what are you talking about? Like, he didn't even know that he was starting work on Monday. It was that environment then that we had a shop that used to have 150 people. We were down to 11, And it was people like me learning how to clean fiber and spray paint truss and drive the van into the city. I think we were, it was like a hold on for dear life kind of moment when when it restarted. Fast forward a year, I like to say every aspect of my life feels about 30% better than it did last year because the work feels less of a fire drill every day. So therefore, you might be going home at a more reasonable hour. You're relationship with your family and friends is better maybe you even go to the gym god forbid i think within that then there's been a little bit more time for people to kind of pick their head up and think about what is this environment that we are working in what do we want to do to improve on this and i think one of the things we've seen is a lot more fluidity about career path uh, a lot more i mean obviously this is everyone's dealing with this but more flexible work from home arrangements more flexible part-time arrangements more welcoming people into a union that had never thought about union life before or had never thought about this industry before. Um, And trying, I think, to break down some of the barriers that existed culturally and historically within PRG. You know, there was the theater division and then there was the TV folks. And those two people did not talk to each other. And they probably didn't even like each other that much. Trying to be better about building, you know, one cohesive PRG, one cohesive team, it's not sales versus ops, it's sales and ops. Trying to do just simple things like doing lunch together once a week to, you know, more structural things like take people in sales roles, promote them into operational roles and vice versa, pair that up with mentorship because you can't just throw somebody into a new position and say, good luck. We have a tuition reimbursement program that I think is really great that people have been taking advantage of specifically when we move people into management roles, to say, like, this is going to be a challenge, right? You're now part of the team that creates the solutions, not the team that flags issues. And, you, you know, if you think I don't know what I'm doing, like, uh, you're now you're on my team. So one of us better learn what we're doing pretty quickly. And, and just really investing in our people, realizing that as much as yeah, we have a lot of gear, our best asset is our people, and if we don't invest in them, we're going to be miles behind. And I think the same is true with our clients, feeling like making sure they understand that we are investing in them just as much as they're investing in us. No one these days can pull a $5 million show out of thin air. There's not that much equipment. There's not that many people. If you want to, if you have a vision, you need to start talking to us early about it, and we'll be realistic and upfront about the challenges of it. Um, and I think that's, being more transparent, I think really just goes a long way in this industry, which for a lot of people can always feel a little bit murky, especially when you're the size of PRG, frankly. You know, you know in theater, we are a commanding presence. And if you have this notion in your head that this is some black box that, you know, you send a request in and who knows what's going to come back, like, that doesn't create a friendly work environment. So trying to chip away at that as well, I think, it, you know, long-term cultural challenges, but stuff that we're working towards every day.
1: So Alex, you said yourself that you had previously thought of PRG as just a lighting vendor, but of course we know it is so much more than that. Could you explain to our listeners what exactly is PRG? What is the scope of the work that you do and what is your role within that?
0: Yeah, so Production Resource Group PRG started effectively in 1988. It was the combination of two companies, Harris Production Services, which was founded by Jerry Harris, our founder and uh, executive chairman, chief creative officer currently, uh, was our CEO until about a year ago when he stepped down. And we have a a new CEO, Stefan Paradin, who ran our uh, European operations for about 12 years. That company in 1988 merged with uh, Scenic Technologies, which was founded by Fred Gallo. And they came together to do effectively in theater what we would think of as production management. It wasn't really called that at the time, but production management, technical resources with the actual fabrication and automation of of the set pieces. And 1988 is important because that was when uh, Phantom of the Opera happened. And that was really PRG's first show, which is, in retrospect, kind of insane to think about that. Two scrappy, you know, late 20, early 30-year-olds managed to convince Cameron McIntosh that, no, we do have a real shop and <laughs> we can automate, <laughs> you know, these stairs and this chandelier. And by the way, they had never done that
1: Easy before. first project.
0: Like, <laughs> baffling. <laughs> but you know what? Listen, that I think a lot that Phantom has... If you think of PRG as starting because of Phantom, there's a number of other companies that did too. The number of mortgages, the number of car payments, tuition payments that that show has paid for is really, it's it's awesome to think about. It's really insane. But PRG started there. We were a theater fabrication automation production services company for probably the first 10 years or so. Eventually the founders realized that if you have all this automation equipment that is busy in the fall and then busy in the spring there's sort of chunks in the winter and chunks in the summer that it's not doing very much so they started picking up the auto show business which is primarily you know late late fall through you know April May would kind of be the latest that it runs i think there's maybe one car show in June still uh, and then some of like the corporate work that would happen uh, in the in the summer. People used to refer to those as industrials. Uh, we don't really have that many of those anymore. And the company kind of grew from there. Uh, eventually went on a little bit of a buying spree, acquired lighting companies first, uh, and then started adding audio to that, growing out from theater, growing out from New York, eventually added Las Vegas and Orlando. And then when we started getting into TV, film, and concert touring, we added... Los Angeles, Chicago, Nashville, Dallas. Um, At our highest point pre-pandemic, I believe we had 72 offices in 15 countries and five continents. Uh, We've shrunk our footprint a little bit, kind of focusing on core markets and where we had really strong market share um, and trying to keep as much of that business as we can to become a little bit more efficient, but still have six main hubs in North America a number in Europe uh, and Asia Pacific as well. So we are currently a company that can do nearly everything physical about a production, either in the live event space or the captured content business. So in theater, which is primarily my business, we will do the automated scenery. We will do the scenic fabrication. We will do the painting. We will, you know, custom fabricate props for you if you need. Uh, We'll do the lighting, audio, video. If you have cameras, broadcast, we can do any of that. We mostly engage directly with the production managers and the designers. So designers have their wish list, production managers have the realities and we sit somewhere in the middle of those things. And uh, ultimately then reporting up to the general managers and the producers. Uh, I'm the vice president of our theater division. So I oversee all of our theater efforts in North America which is about a third focused on Broadway, a third focused on the theatrical touring market, and then a third made up of off-Broadway regional theaters, colleges, universities, touring experiences that don't really fit neatly into uh, any, any box there. And then we have a number of other divisions in North America. We have our TV film, which is both your hybrid TV shows. Think like the Grammys or the Oscars or the Tonys. There's a live component to it, but it's also a show. Theatrical show, as I would think about it, it also has a camera and broadcast piece to that. So we do the broadcast at you know all of the big tennis events. We do a lot of ESPN's coverage of uh, the NFL, the playoff series for MLB, things like that. We are the leader in the n- unscripted, non-scripted TV markets. So we've been doing Survivor. I think for if there's eighty-five seasons of Survivor, we've been doing it for eighty-four of <laughs> them. I don't watch Survivor, so don't don't quote me <laughs> on that. But, uh, we're we're a real There's a lot. There. There's a lot of <laughs> Yes. <laughs> There's a lot of them. There's a lot of like, you know, cops chasing in a, you know, squat car or live fire something. We do all of those. <laughs> and then we have a very big presence in concert touring, corporate events, and what we call PRG gear, which is our, you know, B2B play for uh, other professional production companies. So most companies, I think, think about their dry hire business as just a something they also do. You know, if they didn't win the theater show, that means they might have a console left to rent to another company. We have a full-time dedicated team that's focused on that business that supports the production companies that are going after business that we usually just don't play in either because we're too big or because, uh, you know, we don't have a place in that market. We don't have a physical location. uh, And so we support that. That's a major, major part of our business. So that's just North America. And then we have uh, Europe and Asia Pacific as well.
1: Not a small operation, it's amazing
0: it's such an incredible yeah, <laughs> no, depth and
1: breadth in, in in terms of PRG yes. no it's good but I think
2: some people like you said, people have that interaction with PRG on a certain level so they don't ne- necessarily understand the gamut of of what it does in in multiple markets so it's really interesting to hear that so we always finish off with the, the two same questions that we ask all our podcast guests so we're going we're going to hit that now. What do you like most about your job or the industry? Either one of us.
0: I hope that my bosses never listen to this because I'm sure what I'm about to say is going to make me a pretty measly business person because I know it can cloud judgment and things like that. But I'm really here for the people. I mean, I got into theater because I was looking for more friends in college. I always enjoyed feeling a part of something. When you're in finance, I can't go to a factory that I helped raise money for, A, because that's not what finance is anymore, and B, you don't feel it's, okay, I entered a couple keystrokes, and then something else happened. But it's hard to see where you are really in that process. Even as removed as we are, you know, from, I'm not hammering the set together myself, but I can go see a show that we've worked on and feel Deeply connected to it either because I know the people who worked on it. I know the stories of how it got in there I remember what the bidding process looked like. I know Even maybe if we didn't work on this I know the people who did and know the style that they like to work in and you know Oh, they've never actually done that before. I really want to talk to them about that. Uh, I'm deeply motivated by individual people their their challenges their successes their motivations I think it's why I gravitated towards more of a role that's effectively sales, sales salesy relationship building. And I I love that about my job. I think if I didn't have that, I wouldn't, it would be easy to not feel as motivated to come in every day um, because I really do. I do love that. But it is a business after all. So I suppose I can always be better at not letting those personal relationships get in the way of what we (laughs) do.
1: And if you could change one thing about your job or the industry, what would it be?
0: I think there's good things and bad things with every element that I think anyone would change, right? The, the show-must-go-on mentality in theater has been a terrific one that has let the theater industry survive in challenging times for forever. I hate the demands it puts on my, my people, though. I feel that I am adequately compensated to take those phone calls on the weekend and I understand that that's my job as a manager to, to put out some of those fires. I am tremendously grateful that my team often takes care of these things without me even needing to know about it. But I would love to imagine a, a world that just worked with different expectations where People really did get a weekend. you know people really did get a full if your job is eight hours, you get a full sixteen hours to yourself. I come from a banking mindset. I will never be the first one in the office, but I will often be the last one there. I really try not to create expectations of my team that they should be answering my emails at that hour or you know really try not to send them in the first place, but I think the more mindful we can all be about what that email is going to do to the person receiving it or what that phone call is going to do to the person on the other end of the line, I think would be better because it's it's unsustainable to expect everyone to work the amount of overtime we've all been doing, you know, especially coming back. So I don't have a great solution for that, and I don't know how practical it is, but I would love long-term to see work-life balance take more of a priority as people budget their values. I love that. I do too. I think that's
2: amazing. So you're going to be at LDI. Tell us what you're going to be doing at LDI and where can we find you there?
0: So we're hosting a panel on Saturday uh, in the kind of late afternoon slot. Uh, I believe it's 3.30. It might be 3, 3 or 3.30. But it's with the design team from A Strange Loop. So Strange Loop won the Tony Award for Best Musical this past year Um, It is one of those shows that I think no one expected to come to Broadway in a pre-pandemic world, and I'm so grateful that it did. Its cast recording really got me through some of the darkest days of the pandemic. I also happen to adore the design team, both personally and as, as designers and the work they put out. So we are interviewing them about their process and what the different stages of development of that musical looked like from off-off-off-Broadway to off-Broadway to DC back to Broadway, what the evolution of the technical theater and their interaction with PRG looks like and how we kind of work, how shops and designers work together to accomplish their goals I think it's often a very behind-the-scenes part of theater, but the amount of things that can be accomplished by design and shop talking directly to each other as opposed to through a production manager or GM um, often solves a lot of problems. So talking a little bit about that. So that'll be on our panel on Saturday. Uh, I I would love for as many people as possible to come see that. I think it would be really fun. I also think LDI, though it's very technical, doesn't often focus on the end product especially in theater so i think that'll be really fun uh, for people to get to experience Uh, and then i'm looking forward to poking around a lot of the new vendor showcase stuff the circle bar gotta love the circle bar and we are doing we're hosting a a memorial for timmy brennan at the circle bar so i think that'll be really powerful i mean timmy was a, a great mentor and friend to many in prg and across the entire industry so if you have time please stop by that you'll see a lot of PRG people and probably not a lot of dry eyes. Oh, That's amazing.
2: Well, I'm looking forward to coming to find, find you and, and say hi,
0: Alex. Absolutely. Thanks, this was a lot of fun. I hope I get to see you folks at LDI and looking forward to listening to this.
2: Thank you so yeah, much, thanks for, having, uh, thanks for coming on board.
0: Of course, take care, bye-bye.
2: Theatre at Life is a global media site for entertainment. Memberships start at only 38 US dollars per year.